You are listening to Shadow of the Wing, and I am Antonia Chain. This show is a serialized telling of the novel Shadow of the Wing by Antonia Chain. To find out more, visit antoniachain.com. Listeners are advised that some content is only suitable for a mature audience. Katie May giggled coquettishly. It was a sweet, twinkling peel that, although loaded with potential innuendo, was somehow charming. It had the quality of readily drawing smiles and laughter from others. It was a kind of laugh that had an air of being heard often about it. Katie May was pretty in a housewife kind of way, with blonde shoulder-length hair and a matronly figure. Something about her seemed old-fashioned and of a different era. Jess would have described her as mumsy. Katie May could often be heard chivying people to tidy up after themselves, or ticking women off for housekeeping transgressions. Yet despite this, it was easy to see why Katie May was well liked by both staff and patients. People warmed to her, and she did not seem remotely dangerous. In fact, her lack of ability to control her behaviours meant that she was as dangerous as any other person on the ward and more so than many. She was a dyed-in-the-wool repeat offender, and lit fires whenever she got the opportunity. True pyromania, rather than its more common cousin, arson, was a relatively rare syndrome in mental health work. Although, unsurprisingly, not so rare in top security hospitals. Katie May was on the ward for the purposes of being studied rather than with any real hope of cure. Oh, it just makes me all funny when I see them. They're just so lovely and my legs go all wibbly. Her peals of giggles rang out. She talked about her adoration for fire service personnel. She preferred the men, she told the group, but she really wasn't fussy so long as they wore the uniform. She spoke about them as if they were pop stars. They are all gorgeousness and they're always so lovely. They know me by name, you know. They used to have a picture of me up on the fire station walls all over the country. Can you imagine? Her laughter peeled out. The focus of the group was to look for motivation for past behaviours. And ordinarily, it could be heavy going for everyone. So Jess thought it was probably okay that this was descending into carry-on top security hospital. It was really difficult not to laugh along with Katie May, although this was not true for everyone in the group. I wonder if the shop assistant she nearly killed in boots think it's so funny, asked Terry sullenly. Katie May was a pyromaniac, which is a type of impulse control disorder. It meant that she experienced extreme euphoria when she lit fires and saw the fire take. 
The syndrome has been found to be responsive to behaviour modification treatments, but unfortunately, Katie May also had a type of Munchausen syndrome, which caused her to draw attention to herself. Instead of the more usual addiction to hospitals and unnecessary hospital treatments, Katie May was addicted to fire service personnel. As a child of nine, she played with matches and accidentally caused a fire in her home. She and her family had been rescued from the fire and not too much damage had been done. But rather than be afraid of the tall masked figure that walked into the bedroom she shared with her little brother, she thought he was a Darth Vader-like superhero who'd rescued her and she developed a fixation. At 13, she set fire to a classroom in her school and was again rescued. She ended up at a special school. From special school, after yet another fire, she ended up at a correction centre. Later, she ended up in York Open Women's Prison, when, on day release, she was allowed to go into town shopping. The town CCTV camera showed Katie May in the crowds positively beaming at the fire and even waving at the CCTV camera. She could not have looked like she was having more fun if she'd been at a pantomime. The camera also showed members of the attending fire crew and a policeman walk over to her after a member of the public reported to them that Katie May smelled of petrol. The film of her throwing her arms around the neck of one of the firemen was enough to have her sectioned at Hillgrim. I think it's time to wrap up now. Jess brought the group to a close. Katie May would almost certainly never get out of the hospital. Her peeling laughter and unthreatening manner disguised how lethal she could be. Oh, good, said Katie May. It's bingo tonight. The bingo was also fun. It sounded straightforward enough, a bingo evening for patients to be held in the gym hall. But it was, in fact, a major logistical and security nightmare. The gym hall was a part of a large rectangular building at the end of the west corridor of the main building. On the ground floor was a traditional, old-fashioned but large swimming pool. All the way around the edge of the pool were individual changing rooms with half doors so that heads could be seen above and legs below whilst modesty was maintained. This allowed nurses to keep an eye on security whilst groups of people were getting in and out of the pool. The room directly next to the pool was the fully equipped and unexpectedly modern gym containing a mirrored wall, free weights and machine weights alongside running, rowing and cycling machines. It was popular with many patients at the hospital and the hospital had its share of meatheads, exercise addicts and vanity gym bunnies in both patient and staffing populations. But the staff, unlike the patients, did not have a rule about patient accompaniment needing to be three to one. It was a regular complaint brought up at patients' council that they did not have enough opportunity to visit the gym due to staffing problems. The large room above the pool and gym was known as the gym room and was occasionally used for meditation, pilates and exercise classes. Even more occasionally, the room was used for social events such as discos, concerts and bingo. 
The patients certainly looked forward to whole hospital events, but they were fraught with tensions. Staff had to work hard to keep the predators from prey, enemies from enemies, and opportunists, such as Katie May, from mischief. The patients may have called the evening fun, but staff rarely did. On the other hand, it kept them from the tedium of the wards. The bingo caller had a proper electronic bingo board, which flashed numbers up on a neon-lit background, donated from a local bingo hall, and called the numbers like something straight off a seaside postcard. All the ones, legs eleven. People dutifully whistled and a smattering of chuckles fluttered round the hall. Bingo! cried a patient from Laburnum Ward. Her shout was loud and excited. Others, disappointed not to be winning the toiletries or cheap sweets that were the prizes, floated to the tea table whilst her numbers were checked. Some formed a queue to be taken outside for a cigarette. The smoking ban was very strictly enforced in the gym room due to the solid oak floor which was both beautiful and untreated to be fire retardant. The staff took groups of ten at a time through the locked doors, down the stairs and out to the grounds. The unchaperoned queues formed for the toilets. The toilets had been thoroughly checked before the event and two staff were stationed in each at all times. Although a light-hearted social event, it was very busy for staff and a more closely managed environment than was easily observed. Jess did not have supervisory responsibility at such an event. Her responsibility stopped when she arrived with the patients and so she could enjoy it. It had been fun socialising with the patients who were more light-hearted than they were on the ward. She happily agreed to stay late to assist with the event. She had responsibility, along with a handful of nurses, for escorting the women from the PTU to the gym room. Things had been going reasonably well since the incident with Carl a fortnight before. The therapy groups had been without incident and most of the nurses on the ward were now talking to Jess again. Or, at least they were when Carl wasn't around. Carl continued to avoid her and that suited Jess very well. Later that evening she was going round to Tio's and that was also something that suited her very well. She couldn't help but smile when she thought of it. Jess had left the hospital and made her way over to Tio's. Somehow, over the weeks, they'd made a transition from being on dates to being a couple. It hadn't always been easy, both had baggage, and each was uncertain about becoming bona fide involved with someone else. Baggage and issues got in the way and made things a challenge occasionally, but their challenges were overridden. So it was surprising how quickly they'd slipped comfortably into a feeling like an essential part of something was missing when they worked together. Theo described the feeling of their relationship as delicious and Jess had agreed. They were together and enjoying the ridiculousness of a game of Scrabble. One had challenged the other. They couldn't remember who started it, but both were determined to win. It was a precursor to other games they would share. In their moment... They were completely unaware of a nightmare unfolding at the hospital. The hall was a mess. 
and although the hospital had cleaning staff, after an event like this, everyone had to chip in. Several patients, the ones with OCD, did a better job, helped out. A lot of the nurses also helped, although they didn't think it was their job. It was a big place to clean. There were sheets and sheets of paper everywhere scattered like confetti, covering most of the floor and tabletops. The bingo books had been supplied without metal staples and were joined by a method of punching holes between the pages. It was an effective way to staple without metal, but it also meant the books had been easy to peel and discard pages, which is what almost everyone had done. There were so many paper cups on the floor, and a number of puddles which no one was especially keen to wipe up. Tea, they decided, although it probably wasn't if past experience was anything to go by. Leaving the hall was managed like having children lining up in a playground. Each a line allocated to a member of ward staff. Lines left the hall and went back to their respective wards in order. This took longer than might be expected. There was little distance involved, but the age of the building meant limited space in corridors, each with locked doors to negotiate, so each land snake had to wait for the previous one to clear the locked doorways before they could take their turns through the doors. The patient helpers stood on either side of the gym room, waiting for the floor space to clear so they could get on. One or two of them already beginning to become distressed by the disorder. The nursing and cleaning staff were much more relaxed about the task in hand. However long it took was less time on other duties, and so from their perspective, this became the easy end of their 12-hour shift, and they were not especially in a rush. Going back to the wards after a social event was always a challenge, as patients tended to be a bit hyper and reluctant to go into lock-up for the evening. It rarely resulted in severe problems. Patients didn't want to run the risk of having social events withdrawn, but it could be a pain, so clearing up was the least taxing of the options. No one had been allowed out of the hall without handing in their wax cranes to the nurse stood by the door with a box. No member of staff had yet come across a wax crane used as a weapon, unlike pens and pencils, which were potentially lethal. So crayons were used as bingo pens. Patients did occasionally eat them, so every crane had to be counted, and one member of staff was doing just that. He was pleased with the task he'd been given. It saved him from stacking the heavy metal chairs and the heavy-legged formica tables. That tended to result in heavy shifting work, as the chairs needed to be put back in storage, and that particular nurse had his back to think of. The tables were stacked in fours and dragged in lines to the wall of the gym, but the chairs were stacked in tens ready to be shifted onto the wheeled trolley to the storeroom. The storeroom was unlocked, which surprised Jim McCormack. It didn't lead anywhere, so there was no danger of anyone using it to get out, but he wouldn't be surprised to find patients shagging in there. That's why, even when empty, it was usually kept locked but he wouldn't bother reporting it. He knew that all the staff made mistakes sometime and on the scale of things, an unlocked empty cupboard door was not an issue to get a colleague in bother about. 
It was a shame Jim never got the chance to reconsider or reflect upon how he felt about unlocked cupboard doors afterwards. The room was a little bigger than most people's family bathrooms. It housed some cardboard boxes sealed with paper packing tape, the kind people used to wet before brown box tape became plastic and self-adhesive. Who knew when they were last opened? A sad, bent and crooked, mostly bald, toilet brush artificial Christmas tree sat forlornly in one corner, probably never to be used again. The exercise mats were along one wall, and in the corner nearest the door, a set of sweeping brushes and dustpans. Four stacks of chairs were lined up against a wall. It irritated Jim that the chairs were just stacked with no order to them. They were in the middle of the room rather than at the end, and if they were to stand a hope in hell of getting the others in, they needed to be backed into the corner. The trolley was still in the gym room, but he felt he could drag them over. He went to pull the chairs into a corner and met a sight that was so unexpected and hideous he almost had a heart attack. He was not sure at first what he was seeing, that is, he knew, but because it was all so wrong he was disorientated and couldn't make sense of the sight before him. A naked being lay propped in the very corner of the room, legs outstretched and facing directly towards where Jim stood. There was blood everywhere, blood spurts and spatters up the dingy and scuffed pale hospital green walls. The floor was awash with pools of the dark, viscous liquid, setting and gathering the lightest wrinkling of a crust on the floor. It was hard to tell if the figure was a man or a woman. The head was a ripped and torn bloody mess, bone could be seen at the jawline. One ear had been sliced and hung dangling like a bizarre earring from the side of the figure's face. A large piece of skin and flesh the size of a man's hand lay on the floor between Jim and the figure. On each thigh, from groin to knee, were tram lines of wide, open, gouged to bone, cuts, displaying and curling open like flowers, showing the blue-red of steak flesh and yellow fat, with the white of bone showing through. Most of the blood seemed to stem from these cuts. The left arm was stripped from shoulder to wrist. The fingers of the right arm were cut to a bloody pulp. The chest and neck was a tartan tapestry of shallow crisscross scratches and cuts over virtually every inch. The scene looked like a slaughterhouse. Jim was a mental health nurse and his training in general nursing had been many years before. The most serious cut Jim had had to deal with had been four Christmases ago when his wife had cut the webbing between thumb and first finger as she went to carve the turkey. I'll sort that out, love. No need to go to accident emergency. You'll be there all day and it'll spoil everyone's day. He'd bandaged it up and while his wife spent the day sore, it had never properly healed and the scar was puckered and embarrassed her. Jim was as sensitive to horror as the next man, so it took him a short time to fully grasp what he was seeing. He recoiled in shock. It took him another moment or two to catch his breath and realise that he needed to sound the alarm. 
He reached for his whistle, but reconsidered that could send all the patients still in the gym into dangerous freefall, so trying to compose himself, he prepared to discreetly pull in another nurse to guide the door while he sorted out what to do next. Then the figure opened its eyes and spoke. Fuck off. Fuck off and leave me alone. The whites of the eyes shone like moonlight on the blood-darkened face that spoke. Jim realised, it, it's alive. Momentarily, he felt completely out of his depth, and then, out of heaven knows where, Jim remembered the mantra of nurses everywhere. Airway, breathing, circulation. Make sure the person is not prevented from breathing. Check that they are breathing, and ensure that the pulse is maintained. Jim rushed over to the figure, who he could see up close was a male, although the penis had been sliced in two, along the full length. Jim wondered who the fuck had done this to him. He reached towards the figure, trying to find a place to check the pulse. It's alright, mate, it's alright, mate, I'm here now, nothing to worry about, we'll sort you out, can you hear me, mate? Jim realised he was garbling in his panic. He heard the low whisper from the figure and felt the faint blood spittle from the ripped mouth hit his own face. What was that, mate? What was that? Who did this to you? Jim leant towards the patient. Don Moody's life was in pulls around him and nearly at an end. With the very last vestiges of effort left in him, he raised his right hand and rammed the small blade he held between his own cut and bloody fingers into the jugular, pulsing visibly above the collar around Jim McCormack's neck. Jim's blood left his body in a gushing arc. It hemorrhaged over the prone and dying figure of Don Moody and joined the pools surrounding and covering them both. Jim tried to crawl to the door to raise the alarm, but he'd quickly lost more than 40% of his blood. His blood pressure rapidly dropped, his heart rate increased, and although his body tried to compensate by directing blood to his major organs, he slid quickly into shock. In his last moments he was aware that he was going, but he felt unconcerned. He didn't feel any pain and experienced contentment and calm as he slipped peacefully into a forever sleep. It was a pity the bodies were discovered by Jean Gowans. Jean was a doll-like anorexic woman. It was extraordinary that someone so tiny could scream so loudly and for so long. She was not the only one who would struggle to forget the sight that met her as she went into the cupboard to retrieve the sweeping brushes. The noise that emanated from the store cupboard was so obviously highly alarmed that the whole of the staff team in the gym room immediately moved into managing a major situation as they had been trained. It might be assumed that training required them to speak calmly and move without rushing to quickly progress the emptying of the gym room, but this would be an incorrect assumption. Nurses immediately began yelling and shouting at the patients, You! Move! Now! Riot training had taught nurses that the best way to control a potentially riotous situation was to totally dominate and control those who might riot. The nurses barked orders, shoved if necessary, whistles were blown. 
The purpose was to give the clear message that they were in control and they would take no backchat or resistance. It was loud, it was threatening, it was confusing. Many patients were distressed and the combination of their cries, Jean's continuing screams and the alarms made for a cacophonous, nightmarish 20 minutes. In 20 minutes, all of the patients had been run back to wards and locked in their rooms. The staff that were left in the gym room and those who had been required back on the wards to calm all the hysterical patients would all admit to thinking, what the fuck? Many did not sleep that night. Throughout the noise and yelling, the two bodies lay together, like lovers growing ever more cold in a gruesome embrace. If you enjoyed the show and would like to read more stories by Antonia Chain, you can find her on Facebook, Twitter, and at her website, AntoniaChain.com. Thanks for listening.